people stand to profit handsomely from this experimental medicalization, puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, body-altering surgeries, again, all in pursuit of a lie. They're essentially going to be a medical patient at $30,000 a year or more for the rest of their lives. Today, I sit down with Jeff Myers and Brandon Showalter, co-authors of the book, Exposing the Gender Lie, How to Protect Children and Teens from the Transgender Industry's False Ideology. Voltaire said, if you can make people believe absurdities, you can make them commit atrocities. The U.S. government has no business funding this kind of experimental research, especially on children. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kelleck. Jeff Myers, Brandon Showalter, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Thank you, Jan. Great to be with you. Thank you, Jan. I've really been enjoying reading your new field guide, and I'm going to call it a field guide, Exposing the Gender Lie. It's a very short book, incredibly pithy, I think very helpful. And I, the reason I'm mentioning this right at the outset is I want to encourage people to, that want to learn about this issue more. I think you guys have done a very, very good job at condensing a whole bunch of information, which in many cases you actually reference in the book itself, which is great, um, uh, to try to understand how we got to the place we are today and frankly what might be done to deal with that. But so, Jeff, let's start with you. Well, a lot of people think that transgender is about drag queen fetishes or who can play on what sports team or who can use what bathrooms. All of those are symptoms of both an industry and an ideology. So it's an ideology that came out of the postmodern movement from the 1980s that is attempting to gain power by confusing people about the nature of reality. And then there's an industry, medically, that comes along and says, if children are confused, then they'll use our products and they stand to make tens of billions of dollars. So the ideology and the industry fuel a problem and actually make children double victims. There's also an element of, you know, you talk about in your book about the social contagion of, you know, people believing they're transgender or something that, a gender that doesn't align with their sex, right? But at the same time, there is a, also appears to be some kind of social contagion around how you think about these things in the medical community itself, wouldn't you say? I think that's correct. Uh, there is, I think, indisputably a social contagion fueled largely by social media, online platforms, Tumblr, YouTube, influencers as they are called, to convince people, young people, many of whom are on the autism spectrum, many of whom have a variety of mental health struggles, comorbidities, psychiatric issues, to believe that they were born in the wrong body. It is physiologically impossible to become the opposite sex. And we've seen, as with previous social contagions, anorexia, cutting, other modes of self-harm, that spreads by social contagion. While the same seems to be happening with this, the watershed book that really articulated this a few years ago was Abigail Schreier's Irreversible Damage, The Transgender Craze Seducing Our Daughters, because now for the first time in approximately 100 years of clinical diagnostic history, the primary demographic is teenage girls. We never saw that before with gender dysphoria as it was overwhelmingly something that afflicted preteen boys, overwhelmingly. But now things have changed and in large part due to the industry, as Jeff was saying, that comes alongside <laughs> all of the ideologues who are pushing this message, people stand to profit handsomely from this experimental medicalization, puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, body-altering surgeries, 
again, all in pursuit of a lie. Before we continue, I like to do this on American Thought Leaders episodes, is just I want to understand where you're coming from. Like, you know, why this book? Why now? What got you interested in this whole issue? Jeff. Well, transgenderism is a product of academic thinking and postmodernism starting in the 1980s. So when I was a doctoral student studying for a doctor of philosophy, working in human communication studies, we were reading articles about how gender is a performance and gender and sexuality are different. Well, it was a theory at the time that your gender and your sex could actually be different things. But now it's taken for granted, even though there's no medical way to understand this, even though there's, there's, no, there's nothing more than just the theory that gender and sex are different things, it's now become so popularly accepted that people just assume that your sex is what your body says. In fact, it's, it's what is assigned to you at birth. And then your gender is how you feel about yourself inside. So Healthline.com says there are 68 different genders. And there could be thousands of, of potential genders. Gender essentially becomes an irrelevant category now, but at the same time becomes the only thing that is important. The fact that there are 6,500 catalog biological differences between males and females is set aside. And, and whatever you feel about yourself is what everybody else in society has to respond to. But So this is the thing that basically made you kind of start asking questions about this? Like, what, what, where, where does your motivation to be writing this book come from? Well, Voltaire said, if you can make people believe absurdities, you can make them commit atrocities. And so for me, this book came about because I have a focus on truth. I want, I'm preparing a rising generation through Summit Ministries to embrace the truth. I want them to champion the truth. I want them to be leaders for the truth. And they can't do that in a culture that lives by lies. And what about you, Brandon? How, and, and how is it that you came to work together? Well, confronting this issue was definitely not something I signed up for at a career fair. But it was soon after uh, I start, got my start in journalism, actually, at the Christian Post. And I began to see how there were various laws being passed to prohibit conversion therapy. And it was being applied to this amorphous gender identity. Uh, where if, if someone was confused about their body, male or female, they couldn't receive any sort of counseling that would help them accept their bodies as they really are, as the sex as they are, that they are. And so that was alarming to me. I also began to see how language was being manipulated in the corporate press, phrases like sex assigned at birth, referring to males as she and her. Then when I started to realize the medical, uh, the medicalization of vulnerable people, including and especially children, uh, specifically when I learned what the hormone blockers were to arrest natural puberty, something inside me just kind of snapped. And I said, absolutely not. And I remember the experience that I had as a 14 or 15 year old child when I read the Reader's Digest cover story about the Somalian born supermodel, Waris Deary, who has a campaign to end FGM, female genital mutilation. And I was so viscerally horrified as a teenager reading that story. And that's exactly what I felt, that same visceral horror as a 31-year-old in journalism here in D.C. And I just knew I had to do something about it. The medical abuse, the child abuse, something inside me snapped. You know, uh, I want to touch on this. You mentioned earlier, you talked about vulnerable people, and you mentioned earlier that many of the people that uh, 
this industry is interested in are on the autism spectrum, right? So, but tell me a little bit about that reality. These are very vulnerable people. They are very vulnerable people, and um, we are seeing, you know, many more people than I ever knew were on the autism spectrum. It seems like it's every third or fourth person. Uh, it's some sometimes, but what happens with autistic people or wherever they are on the spectrum, however severe or moderate or mild their autism is, what often happens is that if someone who's autistic becomes enmeshed in a culture where their issues can be explained away by way of gender identity ideology, what autistic people often do is just rigidly fixate on this issue and it becomes the solution to all their problems. And it's that fixation that I think is sort of the deadly combo of First of all, this, this false ideology that the industry perpetuates, coupled with mental health comorbidities, not least of which, in some cases, is autism. Uh, I would want to be very careful that I'm not linking the two necessarily, but it seems that of all the phone calls that I feel from parents who are desperate, who read my coverage at the Christian Post, my daughter's on the spectrum, my son's on the spectrum, he got obsessed with this and now he won't let it go. Somehow, <laughs> the transgender identification and the autism thing, there's, there could probably needs to be an entire book written about what's going on with this connection, but there is one. I don't want to make the correlation causation error, but these people who are dealing with these struggles, and not just autism, you know, social anxiety, depression, other psychiatric ailments and disorders, they're all very vulnerable to this. And I think that that's probably one of the worst aspects of what this ideology does to people. Not only is it false that you can become the opposite sex, it preys upon those who are already, already having a really hard time in life with their mental health, with their psychological struggles, including and especially autistic people. Well. So something that just really strikes me, strikes me about this, Jeff, and I think we talked a little bit about this offline, is it's, it's such a strange thing for a child, for example, to say, you know, oh, I'm, I'm the opposite sex. And the, the way that you're supposed to deal with that medically is just affirm it unquestionably. And I, I've been told by parents of children who have been in this situation, and, and this is actually a, that this is a common thing, too, that they're told that if you don't do that, if you don't wholly affirm your child will commit suicide. I think in many cases, not even, it's more likely to, people say they will. So of course for parents, now parents become very vulnerable. My goodness, I wouldn't want my child to, to do, do that. It would be the worst thing in the world. Well, in our book, Exposing the Gender Lie, we, we take the supposed studies that were done to say that children who don't get transgender procedures medical procedures will commit suicide. Uh, I'm not giving this as counseling advice, but as a social scientist, those studies are, are dead wrong. And in fact, the interpretation of them, the media, is, a, is, is in fact a lie. I will go that far to say that. Uh, when, when you look back at them, you realize at very best, those studies show that people who go through these medical procedures see no improvement, see no improvement. Young people who experience gender dysphoria, in my experience, and I work with several thousand young people every year, always have comorbidities such as anxiety, depression, sometimes suicidal ideation, unresolved childhood trauma, 
all it's so it's it's all of these things all mixed together when the industry says treat gender ideology first it's sort of like saying oh you're about to have a stroke let's give you an aspirin right it's just let's treat the let's treat one of the symptoms rather than try to get back to what really is at the root what these causes are that are causing a person to among other things question their gender identity how did it come about that that this became the way that this is treated medically it just it, it i'm not aware of other scenarios where you would do this right where a, where a doctor would do this? One of the things that I say a lot is institutional capture. And when I say that, sometimes people say, oh, that's tinfoil hat conspiracy. No. Uh, when you have professional societies, such as the American Academy of Pediatrics, the Endocrine Society, the Pediatric Endocrine Society, all of the major sort of counseling and therapy organizations completely buying in with brutal speed that this is how you treat this, you know, disorder, that this is the approach you take. It's to affirm only as whatever the child or the young person says that they are, you are to unquestionably and immediately say you're, that's correct and never ever challenge it. And it is, I think the remarkable thing then, and it's horrifying is how quickly it's all happened. But understand that a lot of the ideologues that have been active in this space, the academic medicine types, They've been making very sneaky and stealthy moves very gradually to the point where once you capture enough institutions and entities, a lot can happen very quickly. Back in 2009, the Endocrine Society revised its guidelines, professional guidelines about how to treat gender dysphoria. Very, that was a big overhaul. A lot of the academic medicine types that really re-engineered a lot of those guidelines, it was, it was quite a departure from previous standards. And in 2017, those guidelines were revisited and revised again. Dr. Quentin Van Meter is a, an Atlanta-based pediatric endocrinologist who's uh, was a leader in the American College of Pediatricians. He it's sort of the alternative to the American Academy of Pediatrics. And he recalls, he's told me that he was at a conference, it was a joint combined session of the American and European Endocrine Societies I think in the late 2000s, where he heard Dr. Norman Spack, who founded the first ever pediatric gender clinic in Boston, and he heard Spack talk about all this wild nonsense and, you know, ch children deciding the gender that they are, and little did he know then that Spack would then help re-engineer these guidelines in 2009 and then subsequent years. And since then, there's been a massive campaign throughout all of culture, throughout popular media, through the news, you know, programming where they have pushed this ideology as though it is scientific. This is emblazoned on corporate outlets. It's everywhere. There's nowhere to escape from it. And so concurrent with the industry's, you know, marketing of these medical products to vulnerable youth, you see these ad campaigns throughout the press promoting this as a way of being cool and as the next frontier of civil rights, hooked on to the wagon of LGB, whatever you think of that, it's very strategic, very savvy, slick marketing campaign. That's how this has taken off so quickly, in addition to the capture of these professional organizations. And doctors, it should be noted, have great social trust in our society. They wear the white coats, they have their degrees on the wall, you tend to believe what they say, they know the science, and so they carry a lot of gravitas. And so people, you know, just 
accept what they say without much of a question. But I think when you are pushing medical practices that are such at such odds with reality and with basic biology, you can do a lot of harm very quickly, and it's only a matter of, matter of time before there's a reckoning. The question becomes how many people have to be irreversibly harmed, sterilized, disfigured in the meantime. Well, it's, un, it's kind of unfathomable to many people. You know, you, you mentioned that people are wearing the white lab coats, the stethoscope. There's, there's an area of gravitas and, and you know, belief that this person is acting on the best available medical knowledge. Um, the, the, the question is, how did this sort of information, how did this sort of approaches that SPAC was promoting at the time, which didn't have a medical basis then, as I understand it, to my, the best of my knowledge, nor do they now, become a kind of orthodoxy even? Well, even the smartest medical doctor can't know everything about everything. So they will go back to the computer for their medical association and look for standards of care. And this would be an outline of this is the best way to treat this or this is the best way to treat this. When it comes to the treating of transgender medicine, the standards of care were developed by an organization called the World Association for Transgender uh, Health. This WPATH set of standards of care developed about 2009 and revised several times since. We're now in the eighth version of it. Uh, specifically state that there is a highly choreographed way to handle transgender medicine. This is the only way that is recommended by the WPATH. And it is that you start with social transition, and refer to someone by their new chosen name, change pronouns, alert their teachers and their parents that they must use these new pronouns. Then, uh, to the level of comfort of the patient, you move toward puberty blockers, you move toward cross-sex hormones, you move toward surgery. This is not a, a sort of a radical step. It's the natural choreographed path outlined by the standards of care that doctors are given. So the question is, where did those standards come from? There was a study done in January, published in January of 2023 by, by the Journal of Sex and Marital Therapy, which is a highly respected publication in the field of psychology, and said the shocking lack of evidence is almost unbelievable for transgender health. And they, they, were, they were actually led to ask, how did we ever get to this place when there's no evidence for this approach? And they called it runaway diffusion, where some, some kind of a, uh, a, a medical innovation in one clinic is taken for a standard of practice, and then it spreads very, very rapidly. The American Academy of Pediatrics is, is one we focus on in the book because there are 60,000 members of that association. Fewer than 30 people had anything to do with developing the transgender standards of care. The vast majority of doctors don't support it, but many are just keeping their head down, their heads down if they work for institutions that are very large and corporatized. This is the dogma that rules the day. Uh, I actually believe that most doctors object to it, but uh, there just aren't very many who are willing to be loud and say, I oppose it. One of the reasons doctors don't speak up is because th there is actually a legal groundwork being laid right now that if you don't follow the standards of care, which are ordinarily taken by doctors as recommendations, not demands, right. if you don't follow the standards of care, then you might, you might open yourself up to a lawsuit by someone, say, who didn't want to go through puberty 
as a male or a female and now has, and your refusal to treat them was medical neglect. So a lot of doctors, just for malpractice reasons, are just following the standards of care, even or recommending the standards of care, even though they don't personally buy into them. There's another dynamic as well because I think the gender industry has been very successful at making everybody else think that they are the experts and you just must defer to them. And I, I'm aware of general practitioners who, you know, they're busy doctors, they're seeing patients all the time, they're not able to be up to speed on what the latest literature says and so given the institutional capture given how you know journals are pumping out this stuff that just is complete nonsense they just assume well you know it's in the journal it's in this trusted journal that I respect and if I don't know anything about it I'm just gonna make a referral to the gender clinic thinking that they're doing the right thing but they're just <laughs> they're not abreast of what's really going on but uh, I think that that is becoming inexcusable and I know doctors I mean they are busy that I I understand that they can't be up to speed about everything but I I as I've been searching for answers as I've covered this issue again for the Christian Post from many different angles the institutional trust in respected publications and within certain hospital systems and within people who are respected in the field there's been a real lag where people just they're not up to speed and so they think well I've trusted this person before it's probably fine and they just don't realize all that has happened. So a few years ago what you're describing to me would perhaps have been almost unfathomable but now that we've seen how frankly most doctors and many medical practitioners responded to the pandemic to, to COVID-19 I'm ready to accept what you're saying. I mean, we had a situation, and many doctors have, have reprised this for me, where, you know, basically a disease which was treatable early on, and symptoms of which were treatable by many existing uh, medications, and even just things like inflammation and so forth, where, you know, I'm not even talking about the unspeakables like ivermectin or hydroxy or some of these other drugs, which, which were being, you know, tested by some of these doctors early on, trying to find a way. Um, the standards of care, so to speak, said, do not treat early, right? Just simply wait until someone gets into a very serious situation and then come to the hospital and, and it, you're out, the outcomes were already very poor. And you think to yourself, how is it even possible that such a thing could have happened? And it had to do with business. It had to do with ideology. As I've learned, as I've come to learn, it had to do with doctors trusting that the, the system knew better Right, um, it, it's, but it's still kind of unfathomable that that it would be so easy. And this is something where, you know, in, it, the focus lately has been on the children. Have you encountered uh, in your work with youth any children that are having this confusion? In my work with young adults, mm -hmm. I regularly encounter young people who are what I would call gender insecure. They have lots of health, mental health issues. They, they are, they, maybe they were isolated during COVID. There are all those kinds of things that happen, but there's a lot of anxiety. There's a lot of depression. 75% of the young adults I work with say they don't have a sense of purpose that gives meaning to their lives. So there are these, there's the existential aspect to this as well. So if what's afflicting you is going on inside your mind, if the part of you 
that is supposed to think about the problem is the part that is sick. What do you do? Well, it's very easy for them to begin believing that I was born in the wrong body. Not just that there's something wrong with my body, but that my body itself is actually wrong. Then when they watch TikTok videos of people who've gone through gender transition and say, I feel at peace with myself, they begin to think, well, maybe that's me. But there are a lot of young people who don't have anything wrong with them who are being convinced that they do. We actually had one student say, is there something wrong with me that there's nothing wrong with me? <laughs> because it, it seems like you don't really have an identity unless you've been to a psychiatrist and got two or three or five different diagnoses for what's wrong with you. The idea that, oh, you know what? Adolescence can be very confusing. And, and there's an adult who you can trust who will guide you into becoming a strong young man who stands for truth and fights against evil and injustice, or becoming a strong young woman who stands for truth and breathes life into others. That missing thing between the generations added to the idea that everything is psychological has made this a, uh, we call it a social contagion, but it is to the point now where in some cases, almost half of the young people in a given school will say they identify as transgender. Or some other gender identity. Or some other gender identity. Right. Now, who knows what they even mean? So what does the existing literature say about why this might be? Because this is clearly a very new phenomenon. Well, there was a landmark study, as I see it, which I mentioned Abigail Schreier's book, Irreversible Damage, a moment ago, but Lisa Lippman's study in 2018, which was excoriated by transgender activists, but it was in the, the journal Plus One, which documented this phenomenon, what the, the phrase that was coined was rapid onset gender dysphoria, where young people spent inordinate amounts of time online, and then in their friend groups and clusters, they're all some, somehow coming out as trans or non-binary or some other gender identity that is apart from their biological sex. So that's an indisputably true phenomenon and I, it just it bears out. Um, I get phone calls all the time saying, oh yeah, that's what sounds like exactly what happened to my daughter. They, they become invested in these friend groups in ordinate amounts of time online and they become convinced that this is going to be the pathway to become their authentic self, that this is the pathway to liberation, that this will give them a fresh start on life. The problem is, is that the psychological conditioning that they need to be something other than the sex that they are is then priming the pump. That belief, that indoctrination, the brainwashing that happens there is then the prelude to what I believe is one of the worst medical scandals that the world has ever seen. <laughs> Aside from what all has come out from COVID, but even with that, I'll just say that concurrent with this, this breakdown of the mental health of a generation. There's been a breakdown in social trust because the press for years, the corporate press has been inculcating the public with this notion that you have an amorphous gender identity apart from sex. And if they're going to flat out lie to you about biology, of course they can twist and deceive about epidemiology or immunology or respiratory viruses, this stuff. I mean, if you can't get the basics of biology right, why on earth would you expect the public to trust you about much loftier themes, about diseases that you haven't heard of or how to treat them appropriately? I mean, they're undercutting the foundational 
you know, units of our knowledge here. Uh, it's an epistemological crisis. And until we puncture the epistemological blockade, uh, I don't think we're going to get very far because they have assaulted the very idea that the words that we use can refer to anything real. Well, so this is, I really want to touch on this. You actually dedicated an entire chapter to this whole issue of how language has been altered and weaponized to facilitate this, you know, very, very different way of thinking and, you know, epistemologically different uh, way of thinking. Yeah. Well, epistemology is the word we use for how we know what we know. But it, it is a philosophical problem at root. The, the biology will tell us, and the theology also tells us, that there's male and female. And that in, a, this, in the side, the spectrum of male, you might have very masculine males, and you might have not so masculine males. Same thing inside of femininity. The gender ideology approach says there aren't two spectra. There's one spectrum with extreme masculinity on one end and extreme femininity on the other. So st our students are regularly told, oh, well, you're a girl who doesn't really enjoy girly things. Maybe you're actually a boy. Maybe you're born in the wrong body. So people slide back and forth along that spectrum, and it's very confusing. What ideology do they take? What box am I in today? Uh, so th that's at the core of, of what's really going on. But we think that it's actually an attack on language then. Because at what point do you stop calling someone a he and start calling them a she? Who decides that if everything is on one spectrum? Okay, So the whole idea of the spectrum is philosophical and theoretical and wrong from, from an actual philosophical standpoint. But now that's where we're operating. So it's all confusing. Well, language confusion is at the heart of every revolutionary movement. Uh, you know from your history and your family's history growing up, that if you want to change how people see the world, if you want to revolutionize them, you first of all have to change how they see language. You know, just go back to the difference between the American Revolution and the French Revolution. The American Revolution's goal was to restore the proper meaning of justice and freedom and liberty. The French Revolution's idea was overthrow the standard conceptions of justice, freedom, liberty, fraternity, and so forth. And every revolutionary movement since that time has gone to war first against the language. Now, we're not saying that, this, that transgenderism is going to create a similar kind of revolution, but if you want to destroy a person, if you want to dehumanize them, the first thing that's always done is an attack on language. You capture the language first, then you can capture everything else. There's a British feminist lesbian academic by the name of Julia Long who's said it better than anyone I've ever heard it last fall at a free speech event in Bristol where she said, the word trans has one function, and that is to falsify reality. As soon as you have a word that can institute the lie that a man is a woman, everything is reversed. If it's possible for some penises to be female, if a female can have a penis, it becomes more easy to say that, well, maybe you can just harvest tissue from your forearm to make a penis for a female, if some penises can be female. The death of meaning of words paves the way for atrocities that we've never before could, could have possibly have imagined. I mean, what, when we fail to be able to convey what we mean with what we say, 
it opens the door for so many things to happen that would have been inconceivable even five minutes ago. At this point, I think the carnage, the medical carnage, the scandal of what transgender medicalization is doing is increasingly unignorable. Detransitioners, those who have undergone this experimental medicalization, hormones, blockers, surgeries, are, are starting to put their heads above the parapet and say, I was irreversibly harmed. And when you see social media timelines like mine, full of young girls who've had their breasts amputated, weeping gashes slashed across their chest. You just can't ignore the pictures. A picture is really worth a thousand words. And when you see medical atrocities, we, it behooves us to ask, what led to this? You know, why is it such that 13-year-old girls, and this has been documented in several medical journals, like JAMA Pediatrics and others, have had their breasts surgically removed, physically healthy breasts, what ethical standards broke down such that that happened? Well, we believe it does start with the corrosion and the corruption of language. If you can't convey what you mean with what you say, you are going to pave the way for these atrocities. And I think until people see them, it's not, it's not going to change because if, if your thinking is governed by all of these euphemisms that are politically correct and spouted endlessly by the media, you're going to think in those categories. And it takes those jarring pictures and those testimonies of young girls with froggy voices due to synthetic testosterone for people to really be able to see the harm and hear the harm. Because, uh, because of the messaging, because of the hijacking and the overhaul of language, the harm isn't made visible because it's, it's covered. Even, even the shift, we write about this in the book, we believe it was a very cunning and manipulative shift from what were once called transsexuals to transgender because with gender being malleable, with gender being this social performance, people hear the word transsexual, but they would get visibly uncomfortable. If you say, oh, I have a transsexual four-year-old, they would think, oh, why are you sexualizing a child? Transsexual four-year-old? You don't sexualize children like that. No, no, no. But with the introduction of transgender, possibly with the add-ons identity, gender expression, it softens it up. It's not as abrasive, but it's basically the same thing. You're trying to convince a child that their body is wrong that their sex is wrong, that they can change their sex. No, you cannot. The corruption of language is everything. And it's why <laughs> I won't be gaslit by it. And at the Christian Post, we have a policy against using any of the euphemisms because it eclipses the reality of biological sex. It eclipses biology. And biology, in the words of evolutionary biologist Colin Wright, is our last collective tether to reality. If we lose that, we lose everything. When you mentioned euphemisms, I, what jumped to my mind immediately is like what they call top surgery or bottom surgery, which is of course something you know incredibly serious and invasive type of surgeries. Those are genital mutilations, and, breast mutilation. and yeah. there are children being subjected to this. The medical, what we think of as the medical industrial complex. And I know that term sounds sounds political. But listen, there's, you know, the, the healthcare industry spends $750 million a year lobbying at the federal level. That's a million and a half dollars per member of Congress that they spend lobbying. Uh, the, the puberty blocking drugs that are given to children to stop puberty, which has irreversible effects on them, damaging their ability to uh, develop as their bodies naturally would, bone density loss, brain swelling, vision loss, all kinds of things. Might, might cost a parent between $5,000 and $30,000 a year. So the medical industry, and if the parents don't pay, 
uh, then of course Medicare or Medicaid or the insurance company might have to pay. Uh, the, the standards say this, these procedures are medically necessary. Okay? It's not my term, that is in the standards of care. These procedures are medically necessary. So then you look back and ask, well, how many kids are we talking about? The number of children diagnosed gender dysphoric has tripled in the last three years, and it's continuing to grow. So you're looking at tens of thousands of children now who are being treated at one of 60 pediatric gender clinics, one of 300 other gender clinics that also treat children. Most nations have one to three. We have 360 in this country. Or maybe more. Possibly <laughs> more growing. by They're this growing. point in time. Now Planned Parenthood yeah. is also, uh, some, some of the drugs are cheaper, like giving testosterone to a girl doesn't cost very much money, and they'll just give it away at Planned Parenthood without the parent's knowledge. And it irreversibly harms these kids. If there ever was a time for people in leadership to stand up and say, enough with the attack on children, this would be it. We do not want to have another medical scandal like the eugenics scandal in the 1920s. Francis Galton, highly respected scientist, thought the way to rid ourselves of the poor and of minorities would be to sterilize them so they can't have children. A medical horror that led actually to Nazi Germany. Uh, in the 1950s, the guy who invented the lobotomy actually won a Nobel Prize for that. 50,000 people were subjected to that procedure. Many of them died. Those who didn't die had their lives ruined forever. We look back at that as a medical horror now, and we think that transgender medicine is doing something similar. Absolutely, and I think perhaps worst of all, the U.S. government is actually funding it. To its great shame, the National Institutes of Health has been, have been funding experiments of this sort. And I've, I've seen FOIA documents that have made my eyes pop and my jaw drop. Uh, for example, in 2015, there was a $5.7 million grant given to a number of pediatric gender clinics to study the outcomes of various kinds of trans-identified young people. And uh, I, my friend, Dr. Michael Laidlaw, who's an endocrinologist, based in California, he and his colleagues did a Freedom of Information request about what was going on with this study and they found, uh, they unearthed a progress report uh, and found that one of the leading pediatricians in the gender clinic world, Dr. Joanna Olson Kennedy, who's based in Los Angeles, Children's Hospital Los Angeles, she altered the protocol for these experiments that were being done, again, funded by our government where they lowered the cross-sex hormone cohort inclusion criteria age from 13 years old to 8 years old. The NIH has signed off on that. Not just blockers, cross-sex hormones. Children as young as 8. That study of that kind has, of those, of those kinds has continued uh, to the tune, the latest figure I saw, I think it was funded to the tune of $10.6 million through, I believe, January of 2026. There was a recent article in the New England Journal of Medicine where the whole cast of characters, the who's who, a veritable who's who of gender doctors analyze psychosocial outcomes of 315 non-binary or trans-identified young people ages 12 to 20. Two of those young people involved in the study took their own lives by suicide, but the gender doctors uh, breezily dismissed that as adverse events. That's how they do it. They paper over the disastrous outcomes and they spin the narrative that this is actually a positive development. Even as a whole rash of young people are being experimented on, 
it's hailed as this universally wonderful, positive, groundbreaking, <laughs> great thing for young people who claim to be born in the wrong body or the opposite sex. Meanwhile, what they're really doing is committing atrocities that should make us all hang our heads in shame. The U.S. government has no business funding this kind of experimental research, especially on children. You know, I can't help but remember that many European countries now have you know, been tried this, right? And most of them, if not all of them right now, have put the brakes on because the outcomes, because they've been studying longitudinally the outcomes for people. And it turns out that this, you know, sort of affirm at any cost approach it isn't actually beneficial to people that have these issues, right? And and maybe can you speak to the what what the literature says on that? Well, the, the United States is not the first nation to experiment with gender mutilation of children. It is the most uh, horrific example of it, but it's not the first. Some of these processes started, well, really in the Netherlands and then Finland and the UK were leaders in this. So it's interesting that Finland and in the UK, where they, their medicine isn't as motivated by the profits that drug companies could potentially make because of the way their system is set up, they've backed away from medicalization as the first-line treatment of gender dysphoria. Now they're saying therapy is the first-line treatment. You give some... you take someone through psychotherapy because their underlying traumas, adverse childhood experiences, uh, <clears throat> anxiety, depression, suicidal ideation, all of these things that are the core problem. And if you address those, these nations have found, 75 to, in some cases, up to 95% of the time, the gender dysphoria symptoms are resolved by the time the child completes puberty. So they're saying, let's back away from the medicalization in the countries that pioneered it because not only does it not work, it hurts kids and there is a better approach that really does help. Europe is indeed backing away from this experimental protocol. Um, and I've, I've seen doctors where a lot of this is called the Dutch protocol because the first well-established case report emerged out of the Netherlands where an endocrinologist working together with a psychologist decided to use that intervention on a troubled young person. The therapeutic idea being that puberty would be too traumatic to endure. Um, but even, I mean, I have seen also Dutch doctors say publicly, Dr. Thomas Steedsma, Dr. Annelou de Vries, that the American approach, they've, they've criticized what's going on here. Even, and the kinds of young people that were being studied in the Netherlands were vastly different. Now, I'm personally not a fan of the Dutch protocol at all. But the analogy that I've used sometimes is the American approach has largely been to just stomp on the gas. They're pouring gasoline on the fire. They're taking the Dutch protocol and amplified it throughout all of society. And it, it, is, it is so, I think, horrible to consider when I, when I go home to the countryside of Virginia and I speak to you know, friends and family and they look at me as though I have four heads. It's so terrible. It's as though an analysis paralysis sets in on them and they think that can be happening. Mm -hmm. Doctors take an oath to first do no harm. The Hippocratic Oath, they have no idea about how much you know, biomedical ethics has collapsed. Well, it has collapsed and children are being irreversibly harmed, disfigured, sterilized. And 
we won't be silent until it stops. I have to say, you know, given everything I've seen over the last few years and how powerful a motivator the prophet can be, even when people's lives are, you know, kind of at stake or, or, or negatively effective, I've, I've come to realize that this is a reality that we have to face. Even knowing this, even seeing it in other disciplines, it's still, I still find it very difficult to accept that there could be a whole, as you call it, medical industrial complex sort of setting up. And it's true, once you get people medicalized with some of these different, you know, puberty blockers, hormones, and, and, and especially once the broader medical interventions happen, like the surgeries, basically it, that person becomes a patient for life. But, you know, knowing everything that I know, and I unfortunately have seen way too much at this point, I still find it difficult to really accept that, that this would be something that people would be pursuing for money. Yeah. Well, in our research, Brandon and I found uh, a market analysis, not from the medical field, but just from the standpoint of investors, saying this is the new market. This is a new thing to invest in. There are billions of dollars to be made through these surgeries and through pharmaceuticals. But you pointed out something that's very appropriate. A child who gets a $30,000 puberty, puberty blocking implant is not just going to be a medical patient for one year. They're essentially going to be a medical patient at $30,000 a year or more for the rest of their lives, as long as they don't want the onset of puberty, then cross-sex hormones, and then surgery. So there are a lot of people who are looking at the bottom line, dollars. We've seen this before. In the opioid crisis, the companies making the opioids specifically lobbied the medical industry to get pain to be viewed as a disease, pain itself to be not only a symptom of a disease, but to be the disease itself. Then doctors were given the opioids to prescribe. This especially adversely affected poor people because if you were wealthier, you could, your doctor through your insurance might take you through physical therapy, which could actually help resolve your pain. If you were poor, they would just give you pills because your insurance doesn't really cover much, the pills don't cost much. The pharmaceutical companies now are being sued for tens of billions of dollars. Many of these lawsuits have been successful and we're now looking at another medical scandal on that scale. I think for those who have trouble believing uh, that doctors are just out to make money with this gender medicalization, I mean, there have been doctors on tape saying it, you know, very famously, the Daily Wire exposed Vanderbilt Hospital where they actually had a doctor on videotape saying, this is a great money maker for our hospital. So it's come right out of the horse's mouth, as it were. Starting in January 1st of 2017, <clears throat> according to the Affordable Care Act, insurance cover carriers are mandated to cover medical expenses for trans folks. Um, some of our BUMC financial folks in, 20, in August of 20, sorry, October of 2016, sorry, a couple years ago, put down some costs of how much money we think each patient would bring in. And this is only including top surgery. This isn't including any bottom surgery. And um, it's a lot of money. These surgeries make a lot of money. Um, so female to male chest reconstruction can bring in $40,000. A patient just on routine hormone treatment, who I'm only seeing a few times a year, can bring in several thousand dollars because that requires a lot of visits and labs. It actually makes money for the hospital. Now these I got from the internet, um, but 
It's from um, the Philadelphia Center for Transgender Surgery, which has um, does a lot of um, surgery for patients. And I just want to give you an idea of how much these bottom surgeries are making. And this is, I think this has to be an underestimate. Uh, this is for a vaginoplasty. They're saying, they're quoting roughly around $20,000 for a vaginoplasty, but that doesn't include your hospital stay, that doesn't include your post-op visits, that doesn't include um, your anesthesia, your OR. So I would think that this has to be a gross underestimate. I think that's just like the surgeon's uh, piece of it, which anybody who's ever been in a hospital knows that that's like 10% of it. Uh, and then the female to male bottom surgeries, these are huge money makers. Again, I think this has to be an underestimate that they're quoting around $20,000 for a phalloplasty. There's been different things that I've read that said it could be up to $100,000. Um, Dr. Winokur, who's our surgeon, says that there's entire clinics where the entire clinic is supported just by their phalloplasties, and that is like a fraction of the surgeries that they're doing. These surgeries are labor-intensive, they require a lot of follow-ups, they require a lot of OR time, and they make money. They make money for the hospital. But even for those who are not motivated by money, I think what needs to be emphasized is that the ideological power is very strong in this space. And in a culture where we see the breakdown of faith, we see the breakdown of family, there's a generation that's crying out to know who they are. And so this has been marketed to them, to young people who don't have any sense of their own identity. And if the battle is about who you are, the stakes are pretty high. This has tremendous power that you don't dare tell someone that they can't be who they are. Uh, but <laughs> when we're speaking about a medical scandal, biology has to matter. The basics have to matter. We have to insist upon a common frame of reference within which we can all have good faith conversations, discuss ideas, and operate from, from shared premises. If we lose that, we've lost everything. And I think the medical scandal, um, when you know, Jeff mentioned earlier about lobotomies, or you know, I, I sometimes speak about thalidomide, medical scandals of yesteryear were not presented to young people in identity nomenclature, but this one is. And so when this psychosis and when this ideological power, when this spell finally breaks off of our society, I think we will be among the few that is not shocked by the vast scope of how many children, young people, young adults were harmed by it. The medical scandal is bad enough, but I think when we see the social scandal along with that, how many families have been fractured and how many young people have been brainwashed into believing the nonsense, the fallout of this is going to be absolutely staggering. Um, but it, I think there's got to be a, a point where we see just how, uh, just how deep and pervasive this has gone where it shocks the conscience. I think our senses have been so dulled by all of this talk about being who you are and identity, where it's made people afraid to criticize it because you don't dare do that, lest you offend or hurt somebody's feelings and then maybe drive them towards suicide, which the trans activists like to use to intimidate people. Well, Which, by the way, which, the, the, the evidence doesn't support. Correct, right? absolutely not. As I not. understand That's it. That's right. right, that's right. But when you see the social cost, in addition to the medical harm, I think that probably holds the key to turning the tide. And as a case in point of that, I was recently a part of an indie film called Dead Name, which profiles three families that have been torn apart by this. And in that movie, which you can see at deadnamedocumentary.com, there's a little boy who was captured on home video whose 
it was the son of a lesbian couple, his, one of his mothers tried to socially transition him. Um, and his other mom, who was trying to keep him intact, captured on home video, and he says, if you want girl parts and you don't have them, you can do special surgery where they turn your penis inside out and there's a vagina that's inside, four years old. I think it's moments like that when you see, okay, we need to really take a step back. What are we doing to children? What are we doing to the human body? How has this taken off to the point where you hear something like that coming out of the mouth of a little kid? I'm sorry, no, this is wrong. And people of goodwill, whatever their politics, whatever their faith, need to say, we need to insist upon some sane ethical standards to guide us once again, especially in the medical arena. Another thing I wanted to touch on um, is just that, you know, aside from this profit motive in the medical industry, there's also this been this centralization of medicine as well, right? Which we, you know, I've, I've discussed with guests talking about the COVID realities and so forth, where these guidelines, these standards of care, go from becoming when at a, at a time when doctors had individual practices, go from becoming a suggestion or an idea to something where it's essentially the entire medical system or that particular series of hospitals essentially says this is how we're doing things and doctors just kind of follow that. Well, the centralization of medicine, making the federal government sort of the dispenser of, of, of medical information, means that the, the lobbying efforts of the pharmaceutical industry become critically important to them. If they want to make a lot of money off of transgender medicine, then they go lobby the federal government. They go lobby the state governments. You know, as we finish up, it, it occurred to me, you know, you mentioned, you know, theology influencing your thinking somewhat. You, of course, work for the Christian Post, so, you know, that there's no surprise there. Um, I guess my, I, I wanted to kind of bring that in because sometimes what you'll hear people say, well, you know, you guys are just Christians. You just want to sort of enforce your Christian worldview here. How does your Christianity fit into the picture, right? Well, as someone who does journalistic work for the Christian Post, it certainly informs and inspires everything that I do. And it motivates me to do truthful work. And I'm animated by my faith. It, it, does, it does drive me. It's the most important thing to me. But what I found is that if you just value the truth, a lot of people will listen. You know, the Lord Jesus Christ said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Jeff likes to point out that you know, the word truth there in that passage in the book of John is actually the word for reality. You will know reality. The reality will set you free. You know, yes, I love the Lord. I want to serve him all my days and I want that to influence everything I do, including my reporting. But a lot of people who don't have a religious faith at all appreciate good, decent, honest people who tell the truth. And so I always try to link back to original source material. So if, even if people don't want to read the Christian Post, they can see the receipts for themselves. <laughs> they can see that, you know, we're not making this up. I'll tell you, I work with radical feminists. I work with left-wing lesbians. The truth is true no matter who says it, and the truth is not contingent upon whether you believe in it or not. It will always be true. And so to the extent that you can report truthfully, um, I think it's just a win for everyone all around, but it just so happens that my faith inspires me to adhere to that standard no matter what. 
And so, uh, but I also just believe that, you know, even if you don't believe as I do, that Genesis 127 is true, that we're made male and female in God's image, the knowledge that human beings are sexually dimorphic mammals is knowledge that's accessible to everyone by human reason. Everybody can know that. It's a manifestly true scientific fact. Psalm 139 declares that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. I believe that with great vigorous enthusiasm. You'll hear me talk about it in that kind of spiritual language. But I want good science too. I want those sound, ethical, sane standards, and I think my faith bolsters that and reinforces that. But you don't have to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to know that what we're saying is true. I think the way I'd phrase it is, if you don't go along with us on the theology, at least go along with us on the biology. Every cell in the body virtually is stamped XX if you're a female, XY if you're a male. The lie that you can change from being male to female or vice versa is just that. It's a lie. And a lot of young people have been led to believe it through social media and through medical misinformation, sometimes even given by their healthcare providers. But the theology and the biology intersect. Uh, the rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs said science takes things apart to see how they work. Religion puts things together to see what they mean. Science and religion need to work together on this issue because it's not just a cold clinical issue. It is literally an attack on an entire generation of young people. And an attack on truth and reality as we know it. And I understand that you're offering your book to anybody that wants it. So where can they find it? You can download it for free. Go to summit.org, summit ministries, summit.org slash protect. You can also go to Christian Post and find the book there. We are making it available for free. It's the first time we've ever done something like that because we really want people to download it and then get it out to as many friends and influencers as possible. Christianpost.com slash ebook slash gender hyphen lie. Well, Jeff Myers and Brandon Showalter, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you, Jan. Thanks, Jan. Thank you all for joining Jeff Myers, Brandon Showalter, and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kellick.